This morning, it's uh, such a great thrill, really, to be in that passage that uh, is uh, often considered to be the passage that uh, the whole world knows. If you watched a football game in the 70s, a professional football game, you saw that guy with a funny multicolored rainbow wig and his sign that said John 3.16 every time somebody kicked a point after touchdown. And since then, the world has come to know that passage as the passage that they think about when they think about the Bible, even such that one presidential candidate years ago got it turned around in an effort to try to persuade people that he was actually a person who read the Bible and studied the Bible. And so he quoted John 16.3, which says something totally different from John 3.16. And it was a uh, Quite interesting. I trust that in God's providence that uh, the Lord might have actually had something to do with that. And uh, as we think of this passage, it's so very, very important that we understand it rightly. I suggest that those in both camps, uh, those camps that Marlon mentioned a moment ago, those in the, the camp that believes in the sovereignty of God and those who believe in the sovereignty of man, I suggest that there are many in both camps who really miss the point of this passage for the sake of superimposing their theology, one camp which is right and one which is wrong, onto this passage. It's never right to superimpose a theology upon a passage when that theology is not there. It's one thing to have right theology. It's one thing to have wrong theology. It's another thing to take right theology and force it into a passage where it's just not there. We've already dealt with the sovereignty of God in salvation and soteriology in verse 8, which tells us that the work of the Holy Spirit comes on a person like the wind. You didn't cause it to happen. If you don't recognize the beauty and the value and the essence, really the point of the fact that you having been caused to be born again, have received a blessing from the Lord that you really had nothing to do with in terms of pursuing it, then you just need to keep reading that passage. It's great to read sound theology related to truth like this, and I think you should. I think it's critical that you read sound theology as we develop as a church. Really, the two things that are most important for you as you develop your theology. One is sound expository preaching, and the other is sound systematic theology. Because a sound systematic theology is the result. It's the the right conclusion of sound Bible study and sound Bible preaching. But be careful that you don't superimpose your sound theology into a place where it's just not there. We want to see what's here in this passage. We want to learn from it. We want to grow as a result of it. And we want to avoid missing the point so as to receive the point. I've often thought that one of the greatest mistakes of those who don't carefully study the Scripture in that they miss the point of a passage or uh, many passages is that they don't get the point. That's really the problem. It's one thing to read a passage wrong. It's another thing to have forsaken the beauty and the value and the extensive help that comes from it when you get the point right. So let's look for the right point in this passage this morning. Let's trust the Lord will give us wisdom to do that. This morning we'll examine God's eternal gift of love to an exhaustively hateful world. 
so that you will believe in his gift for eternal life. Your Roman Catholic friend who will tell you that the tradition of the church is either equal to or more significant than, that's the true Roman Catholic, he will tell you that the tradition of the church, the oral passed down tradition is far more important than the written word of God. You you need to remind him that John has said these things are written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have eternal life. It is about what is written to a great degree as over against your experience. Many times your experience uh, is flawed. In fact, I would say always (laughs) our experience is flawed. The, The Bible is never flawed. You know, Brad read to us from God's Word this morning, and then he tagged that by saying, this is the inspired Word of God. And so when you hear someone uh, say, God told me this, you know, the right question is, oh, did God inspire that? And they might even say yes, and then walk them through what that really means. It means God breathed. That sounds a little different than inspiration. You know, when Elvis wrote a song, you could say, he was inspired to write this love song or whatever. It's a totally different issue when we talk about the Second Timothy, Second Timothy, Second Timmy. <laughs> I guess you could call him that. Second Timothy 3.16, inspiration that God spoke out his word in the same way that God said, let there be light. God gave us his word in its perfection. That's what we mean by inspiration. And so when we think of the inspiration of God's word, we're thinking of that which is the source of eternal life. I suppose I'm less annoyed by the liberal pastor who plainly proclaims that God's word is not sufficient. It's not inerrant. Some of you will remember the Jesus Seminar many years ago where a number of scholars sat around and voted on what words were Jesus' words and which words weren't. So these are liberal theologians. That's what they do. Uh, But they were very bold about it. And so in their conclusion, uh, you know, you have have some books that came out of that. And and, uh, so the result was that a lot of people would would say, yeah, well, it's a good book. It's not perfect. I guess I'm less infuriated by that approach than the man who says he does expository preaching when he actually doesn't, right? Because the second guy is deceptive, and he prevents spiritual growth. He tells people, I'm dealing with the Word of God, and instead what he does is he reads the passage, and he's off on some soapbox. He's off on something related to the building fund, you know, because he wants more buildings on his property or you know, he's angry at the, the older people in the church because, you know, they're not serving the way they used to. Or he's angry at the younger people in the church because they're not serving the way the older people do. You know, on and on and on. It's some personal vendetta that he's superimposing upon the text of Scripture rather than drawing out. We talked about exegesis last week. He's not dealing with the command to exegete the Scripture, to draw out what's actually there. The problem with this, uh, as you can know, is... Uh, an eternal problem because so often pulpit preaching does not display the power of God because it does not truly display the word of God the only thing that's going to bring about legitimate regeneration in the hearts and lives of people who are unregenerate is the sound exposition of God's word it's by preaching 
that people believe. And so a disinterest in sound preaching leads to the promulgation of the Roman Catholic system, among others, such that people think they have eternal life because of something that they're being told by someone in a position of spiritual leadership, someone in a position of authority. They seem confident, or they are confident, and therefore they seem credible. And the sad reality is that it's just a bunch of activity, and people feeling good about themselves. Many times people will say that. You know, I did this for this person the other day, and man, I just felt so good about myself, just great. It shouldn't be the goal, right? It certainly shouldn't be the essence of what you experience afterward. What you should be willing to say is, God predestined me for good works, and therefore I'm just being faithful to what he's called me to do. I trust he's going to use that. Well, our text this morning, because it is the written word of God, and specifically because it speaks to that by which God grants eternal life. I think there's no more important passage in the Bible. So we could spend a lot of time on this. I'm going to do my best to keep it under four or five hours. Uh, I'm kidding, of course. But I do want you to remember that John has said at the end of this letter, and this really is the point, this is where he kind of gets down to a distillation of what he has said throughout. I love this about John, that he would do this. He does this in 1 John as well. He gives us the whole point of the book. In verse 31 of chapter 20, he says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have eternal life. Uh, Everybody on the planet desires eternal life. In fact, Ecclesiastes tells us there is this internal awareness that one is eternal, and so the concept of annihilationism and the concept of atheism, these are are man-made concepts that man attempts to use to dismiss the power of the conscience, to remind him of what he knows is coming. It uh, is an effort to salve the conscience with regard to imminent judgment. He wants to do away with God. He wants to do away with God's Word. He wants to do away with eternity because he wants to do away with any and all consequences for his conduct and for the essence of his heart. But he knows that eternity is coming. He knows he has an eternal soul. It's written on his heart. So where the Lord has told us then in this book, these things are written that you may know that you may have eternal life. You may avoid destruction. You may avoid God's wrath. We really must be careful to know this well and to understand it well. Point number one, I want you to see the eternal source of God's gift to a hateful world. For God so loved the world. In this verse, we see that God gave a gift, a great gift, the best gift, and he gave it to a most undeserving recipient, the world, an evil, God-hating world. But before we see that, we see the source of this best and undeserved gift. That source is God's eternal love. Love is the source of God's gift. The source of God's gift is not some accomplishment on your part. It is not an achievement. It's not your earned remuneration for a job well done. It's not compensation. 
But this, as you know, is what all false religions teach, at least generically. All false religions teach, do well and you get this. Do poorly and you get the opposite of this. Now, that axiomatic reality is not void in Christianity. The fact is that the more you store up, we studied this a few months ago in Matthew 6, the more you store up treasure in heaven, the more you enjoy reward in heaven. There's no way around that. But you cannot earn Jesus Christ. You can't earn the eternal life that he freely grants to everyone who believes in him. It is the result of God's love. Turn with me to Romans 5. In Romans 5, Paul lays out for us a theology of God's love in salvation, beginning with verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That in and of itself takes away any essence of uh, the heart that might persuade itself to think that it was a pursuit of godliness that led to Christ's willingness to grant his death as a substitutionary atonement for sin. Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, but perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. You might die for a person who's righteous. You know, you might do that. You might die for a person whose goodness is so displayed in his life, specifically if it's displayed toward you. You know, you might be willing to give your life for that person. But in contrast, Christ died for the haters of God, the dismissers of God, the ungodly. That's who he died for. God shows his love for us, verse 8. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, that's the theology of God's love in soteriology, God's love in salvation. It displays the basis of Christ's death. You ask the question, why did Christ die? There's a number of legitimately theologically sound answers to that question, none of which contradict each other, but the basis is God's love. The ultimate answer is God's love. Now, there are some implications. There are some significant extenuating circumstances resulting in Christ's death, right? There needed to be death. There needed to be punishment. There needed to be justification. Christ's death accomplished that, but it was sourced by the love of God. Were it not for the love of God, Christ's death would never have happened. It's the love of God. It's not only the love of God. It is the eternal love of God. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 1. Two words prior to verse 5. Let's just call it Ephesians 1.5. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You say, why? There you go. According to the purpose of his will. Will, elsewhere, Paul says it is the kind intention of his will. You say, why did God choose some? Because he's kind. 
But really, that's not the question someone is usually asking when they're asking that. They're usually asking why some and not the others. This is what we know. We know that in man's reprobate state, no one deserved atonement. But God, because of his love, predestined some. It's by grace that you have been saved in Ephesians 2.5. It's because of his love, by grace. Again, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In the beloved, in his son whom he loves. He loves his son, but he loved the elect so much that he gave his son for the sake of the elect. God so loved the world. In God's love for the world, he has given that which is simply remarkable. The condition of the world is a condition of utter and complete hatred. I read to you last week from Romans 7 and 8, pointing out the reality that Man cannot, really, the flesh cannot, those who are in the flesh, those who operate by the flesh always because they are in the flesh, do so, and they cannot obey the law of God. That's because that is the world's condition. The condition of the world is such that it is completely unable to do anything that would ever be even remotely pleasing to God. There's much debate, as you know, over this passage as to what the world is. Cosmos throughout the scripture means a number of things. In certain places, it has to do with the economy of the world or the system of the world. Some want it to mean every single person in the world. Some would say it is the world itself. Well, that's obviously not true. God doesn't love the worldly system. But what we know here is that there are those among the world that God certainly loves. And he loves them in what we would call an efficacious way. But as I mentioned in the introduction, the issue here is not so much who the world is in this passage. So don't let your Arminianism or your Calvinism be superimposed. Don't ever let your Arminianism be imposed on anything. But don't let your Calvinism be imposed on this as well. Because the point is not what the world is here. The point is that God loved the world. Now, if you look with me at Revelation 5, verse 9, you see the extent to which God's love for the world results in the salvation of those from throughout the world. Revelation 5, verse 9, points to the extent of God's love and how it manifests itself. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So if we're speaking of the efficacy, what you might call the effectiveness, those words don't mean exactly the same thing, but they're close enough for you to understand in this venue what efficacy means. 
if we're speaking of efficacy, what we're saying is, and what the Bible is saying, what God is saying is that his death, Christ's death, certainly propitiated the sins of those from every tongue, tribe, and nation, which would give us a sound definition of the world. So if God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and that gift of his only begotten son certainly propitiatorially results in the salvation of some, it is because that love is specifically extended to some in every tongue, every tribe, and every nation, which is a sound definition of the world. But that's not the point. The point is not what the world is here. Super easy to get all wound up about this passage and you know, use it to hammer the, the more Arminian approach that says that God died for every single person in the world. What he's saying here is that God so loved the world. And the specifics of what that looks like is that he gave his son. And in giving his son, we can be certain that it was a gift. So we've looked at the eternal source of God's gift to a hateful world. Second, I want you to see the eternal splendor of God's gift to a hateful world, the eternal splendor. Uh, Moving on in verse 16, that he gave his only son. As I said, it's important to note that it is just that. It is a gift. It is not compensation for hard work or reimbursement for payment made. It is not an achievement award for good behavior or exemplary conduct. It's a gift. Just as Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 2 Corinthians 9, 15 says, Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. The inexpressible, the indescribable person of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't get us off the hook for doing our best to understand who he is. We're accountable for and blessed by what we know about Jesus in God's word. It's perfect. It is, in fact, his inspired, inerrant, infallible word, and it describes him quite well, but not exhaustively. So neither you nor I nor any theologian throughout history knows everything there is to know about Christ, even those who are with him in heaven right now. His inexhaustible, indescribable character is such that we ought to be thankful for him and in our gratitude for him to respond to who he is and what he has done. For by grace you have been saved through faith, Paul says. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's rooted in God's love. And it is a gift. And there is eternal splendor in that gift. It's God's best gift. While it's true that God could have achieved His desired outcome by any means He chose, He chose His best gift. The most splendorous gift. His only Son. The son with whom he shared perfect eternal love since before time. Their love is eternal. Not just in eternity future, 
but in eternity past. Scripture speaks of the Father's love for the Son in John 3.35, where it says the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. There is a practical manifestation of God's love for His Son in that He gives all things under His authority. You know that from Matthew 28. John 10.17, for this reason, the Father loves me. This is not some obligatory recitation of the theology of God's love. This is an expression of Jesus' gratitude for his love for him. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. In my obedience, the love that the Father has for me is a mutual reality with that obedience. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus does what he does because the Father loves him. He chooses subordination to the Father, and that's because of his love for the Father. There is a a widespread debate with regard to the subordination of the Son to the Father. Was there subordination in eternity past? Is he always subordinate to the Father? No. He chose subordination when he stepped into time, and he did so out of his love for the Father. John 17, 23, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There is an intertanglement between the Father and the Son's love for one another and the shared splendor. That in the Son's glory with the Father, He loved the Father and the Father loved the Son And so the glory of each is on display as their love for one another is expressed for each other. In John 17, 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The Father's love for the Son results in the Son's love for his disciples. John 5.20, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show so that you may marvel. The works that are shown bring glory to the Father, they bring glory to the Son, and they display the Father's love for the Son. John 14.31, But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. So this mutual love between the Father and the Son is a love that displays the glory of each because one loves the other, one glorifies the other. They glorify each other out of their love for each other. It's a perfect love, it's a perfect glory. When each are on display, then man sees that love, man sees that glory. But you also see the Father's love for his children in John 14, 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. Who is it that the Father loves? Who is it for whom this special love is granted? It is those who obey him. Why? 
that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. In the Father's love for his Son, the Father chooses to display that love by loving his disciples. There's a specific love expressed for specific people by Jesus with those who followed him when he was on the earth. John 11.5 says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. That love was displayed not only in a practical way in that relationship, but in Jesus' love for Lazarus by resurrecting him from the dead. And what did that result in? It resulted in his glory. John 13, 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You see the love that Jesus expresses for his Father manifesting itself in his love for the disciples up until the end. There was no dismissing of his love. There was no juvenile disposition toward one another, at least Jesus toward those for whom he died, for his disciples. There was no juvenile approach that, you know, as long as you hang in there and do everything I ask, then I will continue to love you. Jesus loved them until the end. But in John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. John 13 tells us that we are to be known by our love one for another. And what does that love for one another result in? It results in God's glory. It's a splendorous love that we have from God the Father, that we have from the Son. And in that love, we even love one another despite our unlovability. Now, if that doesn't glorify God, then what does? When you or I are willing to love each other when we prove to be unloveworthy. John 15, 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You see this obedience of the Son unto the Father as a result of his love. He calls the disciples to do the same thing. This splendorous love, this eternal splendor of God's gift to a hateful world is one that can only be explained by a God who grants his love in eternity past. John 21, verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. John describes himself as the one whom Jesus loved because he understands Jesus to be one who loves. How else would you want to be known? John wasn't exalting himself as if there was some sort of special love that he had greater than the other disciples had, but that's what John knew to be true of Jesus. It was a splendorous, eternal love that Jesus had for him. And in that love, God was glorified. In John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That grace and truth with which he is full glorifies him, glorifies the Father, 
And those who walked with him knew it. They saw his glory on display. This wasn't a new glory. It, was, it wasn't some fresh glory. It wasn't the glory that somehow was manifest simply in his deeds. It was glory that he had with the Father in eternity past. John 2.11, this the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this is his glory that he had with God in eternity past. John 8.54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. John 11.1, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. God in his love for Lazarus, Jesus in his love for Lazarus, displays that love in such a way that it results in the Father's glory and in the Son's glory. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? What is the vehicle that leads to a person experiencing the love of God as God glorifies himself in his Son? Well, according to this passage, according to Jesus in his words to Martha and Mary, it is belief. Believing. The one who believes in the truth will see the glory of God. He will experience the love of God. God. And as you know, Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And he did. John 17, verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. When did Jesus have this splendor? When did he get this glory? There wasn't a point in time. There was no time at which he received that glory for the first time. It is his glory in eternity past. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Why does Jesus receive glory in any context, in any venue at all? It is because God loves him. And in his love for him, he does what he does so that his glory would be on display and Jesus returns that commitment. Jesus chooses to glorify the Father because he loves the Father. This is the eternal splendor of God's gift to a hateful world. As I mentioned earlier in Ephesians 1, in love, he predestined us. What kind of love does God provide for mankind? It is the same love with which the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. It is a predestined love that is a perfect love. It's not the kind of love that you or I experienced, even in the best context that you or I could ever imagine on this earth with another human. As wonderful and beautiful and even spirit-filled as that is, 
This is a perfect love. What is it that the world expresses that makes this love so great in contrast to the reality of who the world is? John 3.19 says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The world is intrinsically evil. The people of the world. Whatever the word world means in John 3.16, and I think we know what it means, but let's just say whatever it means, it's referring to those who are intrinsically evil. Totally depraved. John 5.42, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? You see the pragmatic reality of what it is to desire one's own glory, to dismiss the glory of God, to see no value in the glory of God, but to want glory and to therefore nurture that interest by glorifying others who would glorify self. Jesus gives this to the Pharisees in the form of a question, how can you believe when all you're interested in is your own glory, glorifying others so that they would glorify you? He says in verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. That would have been alarming to the Pharisees. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my Words. So you see the world's hatred for God, the world's hatred for truth, and the world's hatred for real love. And in that hatred, the world proved itself, those of the world proved themselves to be utterly unlovable, unable to earn love. In John 8, 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I will tell the truth... You do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. 
practically speaking, the more clearly truth is delivered, the more quickly those who hate truth run. And there must be a call to an account. There must be an address of why truth haters hate truth. That's what Jesus does here. The reason why you do not hear them, the reason why you do not hear God's words, is because you are not of God. Eventually, in John 12, 31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So there is one who is behind all this. When Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, he referred to him as their father. Now, the person who is a child of the devil doesn't want to acknowledge that. He doesn't want to be, obviously, he doesn't want to be known as a child of the devil, especially if he's playing himself off well as a leader, spiritual leader. Ephesians 2.1, Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. This is the true condition of every natural-born human, every human. And yet... There will be those who want to say, I'm the exception. So the escape, the reality of the natural-born condition, they would say, I was never a child of wrath like the rest of mankind, even though Paul says they were. Again, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. a splendorous love for a hateful world. It's a glorious love for a hate-filled, wretched, intrinsically, pervasively, completely evil world. And in that condition, it's a shock. It's a shock to the system when God's undeserved, comprehensive love encompasses that person. First John 2, 15, we're told, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What's the will of God? What is the will of God for your life? It is that you believe and that in believing you would have eternal life. It's about what you believe. It's about believing. In this splendorous love that God has for God, that God the Son has for the Father and the Father has for the Son, there is a call for those who would believe 
to love him. Now, how is that manifest? John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 15, 18 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. God's splendorous love is granted to all those of the world that hated him and it is received irresistibly by grace. And if you can confidently say, I love God and I can testify to the fact that I love God because I love his commandments, then you can confidently say that that is the result of his irresistible grace. It is because he first loved me that I love him, and in my love for him, I love him, and I prove it by obeying his commands. John 1.9 tells us the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Our text this morning, although we haven't gotten to it yet, speaks of the work of the light. The work of the light is such that it spreads itself out and those who love the Lord are drawn to the light. They come to the light. They want the light of sound truth. They want the light of sound teaching. And yet there are those who run from the light and they run to the darkness, especially when the darkness plays itself off as light. It's the pretense of masquerading as an angel of light. John 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. See, the eternal source of God's gift to an intrinsically, extensively, pervasively evil world is his love. And at any point where you or I or anyone attempts to dismiss that splendorous love by taking credit for any of it, then we dismiss the significance of it. The Father draws the elect unto the Son by which anyone would come to Him. I love this passage because it speaks clearly and concisely of both the truth of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Not only is it true that all that the Father gives me will come to me, but it is also true that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So when you think of John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The certain result is that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the point. That's the point. God didn't give us this passage that we would use it as a tool for clubbing those with whom we disagree on God's sovereignty. The point of the passage is to say that anyone, everyone who believes in him will in fact have eternal life. But you got to get the person right. You have to have a sound understanding of the person of Christ. And I believe that begins by understanding that the eternal source of God's gift to a hateful world is his love and that the eternal splendor 
of God's gift to a hateful world is, in fact, Jesus himself. The eternality of God's glory manifest in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked to the illustration from the book of Numbers. Moses lifted up the fiery serpent, and that pre-shadowed the lifting up of the person of Christ. So you give consideration to how you might help someone else understand what it is to have eternal life. It's critical that you point them to the person of Christ, the splendorous reality of who Jesus actually is. As we sing together this morning, I trust that you will drink deeply from the sound theology of the music that we'll sing and that your heart would be lifted up to the person of Christ, that you would worship and glorify him in his splendor and that your life would be all the more prepared to communicate that splendor to those who would believe. That for everyone who would believe, they would in fact have eternal life. Father, we are thrilled to trust you and to honor you and to give praise to you and we thank you for the person of Christ. We thank you for this crystal clear truth that for all who believe, they will have eternal life. Lord, while we are grateful to have the privilege of knowing sound theology and to understand and to grapple with the deeper truths of your word to the degree that we can, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to have a a pervasive and vast devotion to the simplicity of the gospel and the reality that for all of those who will believe in Jesus Christ, you will in fact grant them eternal life and that that is the result of your love. And Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.